Let's open up our Bibles to um, Genesis chapter 12. Um, when I first gave my life to Christ in 1998, um, I remember being excited and blessed, but at the same time um, being filled with all kinds of uh, roller coaster emotions, um, trying to figure out what what was going on in my life and if if I really was saved uh if God really was pleased with me and how he um how he could love me in spite of all the sins I was still struggling with and all the uh uh different things I was going through and I remember sharing those um struggles with a brother uh who had been a little bit older in the Lord than me and um he he said this to me and it really helped me he said that the christian life is kind of like a, a a climbing a mountain and he says you get on the path and you're way at the bottom and all you know is that you're going to follow the straight and narrow path and walk towards the light at the top and he said but when you're at the bottom you're so far away it seems from the light that the path is kind of dark and so though you know you're going towards the light and you know it's a straight path you find yourself tripping on things uh, you know, you, you hit your head on some branches and scrape your arms on thorns and, and things like that because, you know, it's still a little bit dim. You know, you have a limited sight, you know. He said, but as you progress and as you walk with the Lord and continue, uh, the closer you get to the light, the brighter the path will be. And you'll be able to see more clearly and you'll recognize the stumbling blocks a little more obviously and you'll be able to avoid it. And you'll say, oh, I've been on this train before. I remember what this is like and I remember what to watch out for. And, oh, I see that branch. I know what that feels like. I don't want to hit that. And he says that things will become clearer that the goal is keep walking. And so where we look at uh, Abraham now as we um, continue just at the very beginning of his life and the calling that God placed upon his life uh, we see him very much at the beginning um, and very much at the bottom of that hill, so to speak. And he sees light at the top of it and knows he has to walk towards it. Um, but he's in a season at the start where he's tripping, he's stumbling, he's scraping, um, and, and he's just getting, getting into this whole thing um, and experiencing the wave of, uh, of trials and uh, uh, ups and downs that all of us do. And so we look at Genesis chapter 12, and we see Abraham right at the very beginning. We looked last week at where he came from which was Babylon, and this week, uh, as he departs from there and begins now walking with the Lord, uh, what happens? It says now, in verse 1, it says, Now the Lord had said, notice that that's in the past tense, unto Abram, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and I'll make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now if you look back to the last uh, two verses of chapter 11, just the very end of the previous chapter, uh, and notice what it says there. It says, and Terah, and Terah was Abraham's father, took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his son's son, so that would be um, Abraham's nephew, 
and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, that's uh, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees, that's the province of Babylon where they began, to go into the land of Canaan, and they came to Haran, and they dwelt there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, the only other verse I'll share with you is in Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, concerning um, what's taking place here with Abraham and his family leaving from Ur of the Chaldees. In Acts chapter 7, we have a a sermon that was given by Stephen. And and notice what he says when he speaks. And it's just significant for our, our, um, our, our study this morning. In verse 1 of Acts chapter 7. It says, and he said, uh, and this is Stephen speaking to the council of Jews uh, before whom he's on trial. He said, men and brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. Okay, so God, if we put this together now, what we read in Genesis 12, 1, and then the, the last verses of 11, and then chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. What we gather is that while Abraham was in Ur of the Chaldees, it was then that in some way God manifested himself to Abram and he spoke to him specifically. And he said to Abram, he said, you, Abram, you, you get out of your country and away from your family, your kindred, and away from your father's house. Three, three different people groups that he says you're to separate from. And he says, and you go into a land that I will tell thee of or show you. And then he says, and this is the reason why I'm calling you out. And he gives to Abram a list of, of those uh, promises and the things that he's going to do with Abram. But what we realize as we then look at what actually happened with Abraham once he responded to that call is that he didn't do it exactly the way God had commanded it uh, or the, the way that God desired it. We see that um, out of whether it was respect for his father or whether it was his father feeling like he had to control the reins of leadership within the family, Terah, the father of Abram, said, I'm going with you, Abram. If you're going to leave Ur and go to Canaan and you're so strongly set that you must do this thing, then I'm going to come with you. And so Haran, I'm sorry, Terah, the father of Abram, he went and so also then did Lot and and all that were with them. And they departed to go into Canaan, but they never made it. They got to Haran. And once they got to Haran, they decided that they would stay right there uh, where they were in Haran. And then they stayed there until um, Abraham's father, Terah, died. Uh, And then the story picks up again back in, in Genesis 12:1, where it says, Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, meaning that it was something that had been done in the past, but that the plan of God had been put on the back burner. And so the first thing that we, we, we recognize here and notice about um, Abraham's uh, call in his experience is that there was delayed obedience. And that is that God specifically said to him that you're to separate from your father's house and your kindred and from your land and you are to go into the land that I will show you. And whether it was out of respect or out of comfort or ease or we don't know why, he, he did one of 
the three things that God had asked him to do. He separated from his land, uh, essentially, and kind of from his kindred, you know, anybody else that was dwelling there that, that he had any relation to. But he went with his father and with his father's household, and he didn't come into the land that God had called him into. And, and what this translated into for Abram and his experience was nothing more than wasted time. We don't know exactly how old Abram was when God first spoke to him or when God wanted the plan to begin within his life. But the plan of God couldn't begin within his life until there was a a complete separation from all that would hinder what God wanted to do within him. And, And that's important for us to understand because God calls us out of the world. He calls us out of our old life out of what we once were. And he calls us to make a complete severing with those things. That doesn't mean that we cut off our relationship with our families. You know, it's kind of a different context that we live in. But it does mean that there is a new walk. We're going a different path, a different direction. And when we obey partially what God called us to, it isn't that he rejects us uh, or that we can't be saved necessarily. You know, I mean, when we when we receive Christ and, and this whole thing, I think God had Abraham in the plan and in the way, but God couldn't do what he wanted to do with Abraham and in Abraham until all of those other influence were cut off from his life. And so uh, there's a delay. There's a waiting because of Abraham's incomplete obedience at this time. And I wonder how much time is wasted in our own, um, our own progress, our own Christian life, just because uh, of, of a partial obedience to what God has asked of us or what he's called us to do. Well, what God wanted to do, and he gives them now, um, well, he already gave them the promises, but now the door is open for them to um, take place. He gives them these things. He says, first of all, in verse 2, he says that I will make of thee a great nation. And certainly uh, the nation of the Israelites, uh, one of the oldest nations um, that is still alive today, was birthed from Abraham. A small but yet very significant and very great nation in their contribution to what they've given to the world um, and, and, and what they've been historically. Second of all, he says that I will bless you and I will make your name great. And certainly the name of Abraham uh, still highly venerated, still considered uh, very great in the eyes of uh, a lot of the world even today. And then he says, and you shall be a blessing. And then in verse 3, he says, I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. Now, that promise carries with it both an individual application, but it also carries with it uh, a national um, promise with it. And that is that if our um, hearts as Christians uh, are towards the Jew and towards God's plan for the Israelite nation, then the blessing that God placed upon Abraham will also exist upon that person. There's no room for anti-Semitism within the Christian faith. And unfortunately, uh, throughout church history, there have been um, segments, areas, Christians that have held a very anti-Semitic view. Uh, God's not into that. God says if the sun and the moon and the oceans cease to be, then will my favor and promise cease to be towards the children of Israel, you know, and certainly those things have not ceased to be, you know, so God is still for the Jew, and he, he says to us, he says, I will bless those that bless thee. I also believe that on a, a national level, the most important um, uh, um, aspect of foreign policy that a nation can um, embrace is a favoritism towards Israel. 
because God specifically talks about how he will deal with a nation based upon how that nation deals with his nation, that is the nation of Israel. And it's interesting to think about what our country is and what our country has been. And there's a lot of reasons why God's blessing has been on our country. But one of those reasons uh, is because of the position that we have held historically uh, towards our chief ally in the Middle East, Israel. And probably, uh, if we consider the, the backsliding of our nation and what it's becoming and what it's become, probably one of the only things that we've got left uh, standing between us and the judgment of God is that we still, at least in name, uh, stand with the nation of Israel. And God says, I will bless them that bless thee. Uh, and so a, a very important promise uh, that I see still holds through even till today. And then he says, um, finally, at the end of verse 3 there, he says, And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Not only will you be a blessing, but through what I do in your life, every family of the world is going to be blessed. And that's absolutely true. There are two things that the descendants of Abraham, specifically the Jewish race, has given to the world that we are uh, indebted to in a way that we could never repay. Uh, Number one is that they have given to us the scriptures. Romans chapter 3, verse 1, uh, Paul says, what advantage does the Jew have in light of, uh, you know, the inclusiveness of the New Testament? Is there, is there any respect or, or reverence that should be given to the Jew? And Paul says, much in every way. And then he says, chiefly, because it's through them that God has committed to the world the oracles or the scriptures, the word of God. And so the truth of God that preserves all things and that we can look at everything that we enjoy in this country and it is a byproduct of we're indebted to the Jew for it because in some way it's because of the truth of God that's been given to us. It came through Abraham. The second thing is the Savior, that God raised up Abraham and built a nation from his descendants so that he could bring Jesus into the world through that nation. And then Jesus would then be the savior of all mankind through his death on the cross. And so for those two things alone, not to mention all of what uh, technological advances and medical discoveries and everything else uh, the descendants of Abraham have given to us, for those two things alone, the scriptures and the savior All the families of the earth uh, certainly have been blessed through him, the promise of God. And so it tells us then in verse 4, now that Abraham, um, Haran, uh, or uh, Terah has died in Haran, it says, so Abraham then departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. And it says that Lot went with him. Now, um, he's getting a little closer now. (laughs) He's still not. He's still not in in perfect obedience to what God's called him to do. He said, get away from your kindred. You know, that's your extended family. And he he yet feels some obligation to Lot. We learn in the last chapter that Lot's father died before the grandfather died. Abraham's brother died. And so Abraham probably felt a little bit of a responsibility to take care of Lot, to look after him. Um, And so Lot goes with him. And that's going to cause a problem for Abraham, and God's going to have to let things happen in Abraham's life to separate the two of them, because even having Lot with Abram is going to hinder God's work and God's plan. Uh, We're going to see that Lot was a saved person. It wasn't that he was unsaved. It wasn't that he wasn't loved by God. But he was a man who was very much after the world and after the flesh, And that would be a hindrance to the work that God would be doing in Abraham, who, though he wasn't perfect, absolutely had a heart after God. 
And so there was a separation that needed to happen, and it will happen the hard way rather than the easy way because Abraham um, takes Lot with him uh, when he goes. And so he took um, Lot with him, and it says that Abram was 75 years old when he departed out of Haran. Now that means he was no young uh, man. He was getting on in years, even at the time that the plan of God was beginning in his life. And I I find that very encouraging to to realize uh, that there's no, it's never too late. That any any time in our lives that we want to bring ourselves into alignment with what God is asking us to do, or who God is asking us to be, that God can take us right from that point where we are, and he can still use our lives in incredible ways. I mean, look at the magnitude of things that God did with Abraham, and it didn't start till he was 75 years old. It's nothing is too hard for God. And, and all he's looking for is someone who's, whose life will come into alignment and into obedience with what he's asked us to do. Billy Graham said this, uh, a man greatly used by God. He said, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man whose heart is completely yielded to him. I, I mean, if I say that, you go, yeah, that's cool. But if Billy Graham says that, <laughs> you know, and you look at how greatly he's been used, and 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 it's true. There's truth in that. When when our hearts are yielded to God in absolute um, submission to what He wants for us, He can do more than we could ever ask, think, or imagine. And so, in verse five, it says, "So Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son." And all their substance that they had gathered and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan and into the land of Canaan they came. Now don't picture in your mind for one moment here that this is like uh, um, three people and a camel and a suitcase. (laughs) You know, uh, this is probably a huge caravan that's moving southward through the land of Syria and then into the borders of what was then uh, Canaan. We're going to learn in chapter 14 that when Lot is taken captive by uh, some of the kings of the the north and and there's a kind of a rescue mission that has to take place, Abraham takes the 318 servants that are in his entourage or in his company and he arms them and takes them into the battle. Uh, now, he probably didn't have 318 servants at this point, because we're going to learn in this chapter that he picked up a few more when he was in Egypt. You know, but, but he certainly was coming out with an incredible company uh, of, of souls and people as they're moving them through uh, southward into the land of Canaan. And so verse 6, it says, And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Shechem, unto the plain of Morah, and the Canaanite was then in the land. And so Abram was a stranger amongst a group of people that were already inhabiting the land at that time. And so in the context of now this man, Abram, coming with his whole uh, family and, and entourage of servants and camels and flocks and herds and all the rest, they come into this land and he is an absolute stranger within that land. And it's in that context, this stranger in the midst of a land that God speaks in verse 7. It says, And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord. Now what that'd be like is like you go into a Walmart and you know you maybe own a 7-Eleven. And you go into Walmart and God says, You're going to be the CEO <laughs> of Walmart. 
It's going to, I'm going to deliver this into your hand. That's the way uh, Abraham would feel in, in this setting where he's amongst all these strangers in this land, this land of established Canaanites. And he's in there and God's promise is this, this land is yours. I'm going to give this land to you and to your descendants after you. And Abraham's response to that, it says that he built an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And he removed from there, from Shechem, unto a mountain on the east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. Now what you see in this, uh, between the end of verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8, is you see the two earthly things that marked Abraham's whole life. You see an altar in verse 7, and then you see a tent in verse 8. And everywhere that Abram goes, from, from this point forward for the rest of his life, there will be two things that mark him. The altar that he builds in the place, and the tent that he pitches that is his dwelling. The altar symbolizes Abram's relationship with the world to come. And that is that he was a giver to God or a receiver from God. That he, his life was given completely to God. It was a sacrifice. The Bible says that we are to be a living sacrifice unto God. And so his relationship with the world to come is that it was already offered up to that. His relationship with this world was marked by the tent. And that is that he had no certain dwelling place. We're going to learn that Abraham is a very rich man. Very much gold wealth, livestock. He could have built a house. He could have built a neighborhood. He could have built a palace. He's going to be called a prince in not too long of a time from where he is, but he never would do that. He was a dweller in tents. In Hebrews, speaking of Abraham and talking about his life, looking at it from heaven's perspective, it says that he was looking for a city that had foundations whose builder and maker was God. And part of what drove Abram to leave Babylon and to now travel like a nomad into a land that he doesn't know is that he realized that there was no place on this earth where he could plant roots and find satisfaction. And so he never did. He completely gave himself to living in tents that he would be able to uproot and leave at any time. That's a great mentality for the Christian, the altar and the tent. Our relationship with the next world, Lord, I'm already there. May my life be a sacrifice unto you. And my relationship with this world, a tent. Lord, may I be ready to go at any time. No roots here. There's no foundation. And so it says that he pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. Now, I love that. The word Bethel means house of God. And that's on one side. And then it says Hai on the east. Hai means place of ruins. And it's a great picture of where Abraham is at at this point. He's halfway between the place of ruins and the house of God. And isn't that a picture of what happens to us when we first come out of Babylon ourselves? We kind of look at our lives and we, we realize that the lights have been turned down, that God is revealing himself to us. Uh, the, the word of God makes sense. We're beginning to learn how to pray. Uh, we're making all kinds of mistakes. We're learning, okay, this is what God wants. This is what does, he doesn't want. He's real. He's with me in the whole thing. And we go, where am I in life? And you realize, you know where I feel? I'm, I'm halfway between a place of ruins where I came from and the house of God where I'm heading. And that's where Abraham, that's the first place that he pitched his tent. Uh, and how he's walking in the will of God. 
And it says that there he called upon the name of the Lord. And so Abraham journeyed, going on still towards the south. And then in verse 10, the first trial and test of Abram's life comes. It says, and there was a famine in the land. Imagine that. He's in the perfect will of God, and a famine comes into the land where God has led him. So he's right where he's supposed to be, and yet there's a famine. How... We, we get so thrown back, don't we, when that happens in our lives? <laughs> we go, God, this is, what, I thought I was doing what I was supposed to do. Why is there a famine? Why is there no money coming in? Why is work drying up? Why is this happening? Now, for Abram, that's a big deal. I mean, if it's just him and his wife and his son, you could always go kill a deer and find something to eat. But he's got a couple of hundred people that are looking at him of where's the food going to come from? You've led us into this place, and now there's no place for us to, to, to grow food. There's no, no water or grain for our flocks and herds. What are we supposed to do in this thing? And so the pressure now begins to mount upon Abram. The Bible tells us later on that the land of Canaan is watered only by the rains from heaven. In Egypt, they, they relied upon the Nile. In other places, there were other water sources. But for this land, it's a land of hills and valleys, it was completely dependent upon the rains. And God says, I'm in control of that. And so what we see here is a famine that is ordered by the Lord as a test for Abram. What's he going to do? Is he going to hang in there and stay in the place where I've called him to be? Or when famine comes, is he going to fend for himself and try to figure out a way to fix the situation that he's in? Well, he fails. (laughs) Notice what he does. It says that Abraham went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was very grievous in the land. And so he checks out of the plan of God and he says, we've got to fix this. This isn't a good situation for us. Let's go down to Egypt. And so it came to pass that when he was come near to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarai, his wife, behold now, I know that you are a fair woman to look upon. Therefore, it shall come to pass that when the Egyptians shall see you, that they shall say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they'll save you alive. Okay, so the first thing that happens as they're coming down now towards Egypt is that they're starting to realize that they're not going into a good place. (laughs) The Bible says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And any time that you feel the peace of God begin to um, become unsettled within you because of a decision that you're making, it's wise to pay attention to that. <laughs> you know, because God's probably trying to get your attention about something that's going on. And so they're coming there, and before they even get into the land, they're just getting near to it. Abraham goes, you know, um, this might not be the, the best place for a Christian to be right now. <laughs> and so here's what we're going to do. And then he tells Sarah uh, to lie. He says, when we get there, they're going to see how beautiful you are, which, by the way, she's 65 at least at this point, so she must have been an extremely attractive 65. Maybe she was a Zumba instructor or something in Babylon before they left, you know. But uh, he, he recognizes here in this thing um, that, that, uh, um, that she's attractive. And he, so he says, if they see that me and they know that you're my wife, they'll kill me and they'll take you. So say, I pray that, that you are my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake and my soul shall live because of me. Listen carefully. Anytime that you feel like you have to lie while you're in the will of God, in order for God to sustain you, you're not in the will of God. 
<laughs> you never have to do this. You never have to resort to, to lying uh, in, in, to, in order to fix a situation because you think, that well, this is the way God wants me to get out of this. Uh, obviously, there's a famine and all that, so this is what I have to do uh, in it. Listen, when you walk out of the will of God, um, what's always going to happen every time is that there's going to be three things. Number one is that there's, first of all, there's going to be compromise. And that's what this is. He's, he's asking her to lie, you know, um, and, and she doesn't have to lie. And so, but that's what's going to happen. If you're out of the will of God, you've got to compromise now. The second thing that there's always going to be is there's going to be confusion. And Abraham is very definitely confused right now because he's operating on the principle that once we get to Egypt, adultery is forbidden, but murder's okay. they'll take Sarah and but you know which which would be horrible knowing that I'm her husband but they'll kill me and that's fine you know and he's confused the Bible tells us in the New Testament book of James that where there is strife then there is confusion in every evil work strife is when I feel like I have to strive in order to make things happen or that I have to help God out in some way And when I'm striving within my life, one of the byproducts of that striving is that there's going to be confusion. I'm not going to be able to see clearly what's going on around me. And so my decision making is in a a very bad place. And so James will go on to say, it's in James chapter 3, that this wisdom does not come from the Father, but it's earthly, it's sensual, and it's devilish. He says, wisdom that's from above is pure, meaning you don't have to compromise or lie. It's peaceable. It resonates in the spirit that this is the right thing for me to do. It's easily received, meaning it makes sense. It's full of mercy and good fruit. There's good that's going to come out of it. No good's ever going to come from a lie. It's without hypocrisy and partiality, and it brings forth the fruit of peace within my life. It's, it's, there's a, a fruit of righteousness that comes from God's wisdom. And so where I'm striving to make something happen according to the will of God, the result of that is going to be confusion, and evil is going to follow confusion. And so compromise followed by confusion, which then will always lead to complication. Things become very, very complicated. And watch the complication that happens once we get into verse 14. It says, And it came to pass that when Abram was come into Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman that she was very fair. So they notice right away she was wearing yoga pants or something, and she was working it. Who knows, you know, but uh, they notice. They see what, what they've got in front of her, and it says that the princes also of Pharaoh saw her, and they commended her before Pharaoh, and it says the woman was then taken into Pharaoh's house. Now, a deal like that would not happen without Pharaoh negotiating with the woman's brother, as he's being called. And so that means that Abraham is in on this whole transaction. Thank you, Abraham. I'm sure Sarah is thinking thinking, as they walk. They're going to kill me. They're going to kill me. Just go with it. We'll figure it out later. It's becoming complicated. But there's something in it for Abraham. Notice in verse 16. It says, and he entreated Abraham well for her sake, and he had sheep and oxen and asses and men servants and maidservants and she asses and camels. And so Abraham, through this transaction, is becoming very rich. 
He is feeding off the wealth of the land, and it's only costing him his wife. You know, <laughs> that's all, Sarah. It's just a little bit of time in Pharaoh's harem, and I'm not really sure how this is going to work out. But financially, this is really good for us right now, and we've got to go with it because there's nothing going on in Canaan, and there's an abundance going on in Egypt. And I'm only putting a, a little risk into this thing. What is Abraham putting at risk? You really think about it. He's putting everything at risk. Not only is he putting his wife at risk, but he's putting the plan of God for his life at risk. The very purpose for which God called him out of earth, he's putting it at risk. And if you follow it down through the dominoes, he's putting yours and my salvation at risk. Because it will be through the seed of Abraham that Jesus will come into the world. And if Jesus doesn't come into the world, then you and I are not sitting here And we're not headed for heaven. He puts the entire plan of God's work within the whole world at risk because he needs some food or because he can gain financially from it. This is a huge blunder that Abraham is making at this time. Thankfully, God steps in. Thankfully, it says, and the Lord. If you have a new King James, it says, but the Lord. And I'm thankful for the but the Lord's. (laughs) that accompany our lives uh, when we do things that bring complication uh, (laughs) that has the the, the potential to be disastrous within us. It says, but the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram. Do you know that your sin is going to find you out? (laughs) And so now Abram has to deal with the consequences of this issue. And the first consequence is is the reproach that he will have to endure before the Pharaoh himself, before a Gentile pagan king. Abram, this great man, will stand. And so he said, what is this that you have done unto me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why saidst thou... She is my sister, so I might have taken her to be my wife. Now, therefore, behold thy wife. I'm sure those words stung just a little bit. And I wonder what the look on Sarah's face was saying to Abram at this point, too. He says, take her and go your way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. So Abram gets a military escort out of Egypt. With all that he has. And so he not only bears the reproach and the stain that will come upon his his memory in Egypt and his reputation for further generations, but he is escorted out. He's kicked out of a country (laughs) because of a lie that he has told. And he has to carry with him everything that he attained and obtained that will be a constant reminder to him. And not only does he leave with everything that he obtained, he leaves with a young woman, a servant girl named Hagar. That will become a big problem in Abraham's family and for his descendants and into the present day that we're living in today. The outlasting consequences of walking outside of the will of God because we think we have to help him out to help what he's going to do within our lives. But I love, we're just going to look at the first four verses of chapter 13 and see the resolution of this before the Lord. I think that was probably a very quiet walk back to Canaan. (laughs) It says that Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and Lot with him, 
into the south, back into the south of Canaan. And Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold, and he went on his journeys from the south, even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Hai, unto the place of the altar, which he had made there at the first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And so Abram returns, a very great picture in the scripture of repentance. That's what repentance means. It means to turn around from the direction that you're going and go back in the other direction. And so Abram repents of what it is that he uh, did here. He leaves Egypt with what he obtained and he goes back to the beginning. He goes back to the altar, which he made at first, and there he rededicates his life to the Lord. He says, God, I really royally screwed up in this thing that I did. And if you would take me back, Lord, I'm willing to start right back at the very beginning where I first called upon your name at the very beginning uh, of this thing. And of course, we know that God is so willing to do that. And so what are the concluding uh, things that we can take away from uh, this segment of Abram's life, the very beginning while he's just kind of at the bottom of the hill, uh, he sees the light in the distance, he's stumbling over things, he's getting cut up by the the thorns and whatnot on the path, he he doesn't know where he's going. What can we take away from this? Number one uh, is this, is that the promises of God uh, within our lives are sure, but they're sometimes conditional. They're sure, but they're conditional. God made a promise to Abram. He said, I've got a plan for your life. You're not a mistake. There's something that I want to do with you. I know you. I wired you a certain way. I've got something for you, and I'm going to perform it. I know how to make it happen, but I'm calling you to leave the Father's house and your kindred and your nation and go into the land that I will show you of. And there are conditional promises within the Bible. And sometimes, you know, the, 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 the salvation thing is not conditional, except for the fact that we receive Christ, that we receive him, that's the condition. You know, we repent of our sins, we turn to Christ, we're saved. But then God has this whole plan for our lives. And what he asks us to do is walk in obedience to what he's called us for, to walk in obedience to his word, to obey the Spirit's promptings within our lives. And as we yield to those things, we see the plan of God unfold. In Romans chapter 11, verse 29, the Bible says, Paul says that he says that the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. Meaning that if God has given you gifts or if God has placed a calling upon your life, he's not going to change his mind concerning that calling. And that's very comforting because it means that Abraham didn't ruin God's plan when he screwed up. And we don't ruin God's plan for us when we screw up. His plan and his purpose are without repentance. However, God will wait for us to come into a place of alignment with his will or into a place of obedience before we see that plan unfold within our lives. In Isaiah chapter uh, 30, verse 15, notice what the prophet says, speaking by the Holy Spirit. He says, For thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and in rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength, but you would not. You said, no, for we will flee upon horses, therefore shall you flee. And you said, we will ride upon the swift, therefore they that pursue you shall be swift. One thousand shall flee at the rebuke of one, and at the rebuke of five shall you flee, till you be left as a beacon upon the top of a mountain and as an ensign upon a hill. 
So in other words, what God's saying is, listen, what I've commanded of you is that you return to me and that you trust in me and let me work things out in the context of what Isaiah is is talking to. But they said, no, we're going to work this out ourselves. We'll do it our way. We'll we'll raise our military. We'll get fast horses. We're going to do it. And God says, I'm not going to deliver you through the multitude of your effort. And so, he says in verse 18, therefore, will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you and therefore will he be exalted that you may have mercy upon you for the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for him. In other words, God isn't going to let our disobedience prosper because that will foster a life of disobedience. God's not going to let our compromise or let us in our compromise succeed because that will just enable us to continue in compromise. He'll wait like he did with Abram for us to come into alignment with what he's asked of us and then he'll let his plan continue. He'll wait even if he has to wait until we're 75 years old. And he'll wait even if he has to wait until we're buried in the grave if we continue to do things our own way and not to yield to what it is that he is asking for us. And so his promise is sure to us, but it is conditional. The second thing that we learn from this passage is that the purpose of a test or of a temptation or of a trial is not so that we'll fail, but rather it's to reveal what's in us and to free us from it. See, Abraham didn't compromise because of the famine. He compromised because it was in his heart to compromise, and the famine exposed the compromise that was in his heart. And that's always the way compromise works, whether it's something like Abraham where he just left the plan of God to provide for himself or in any other area of our lives that we compromise. If we're given to anger, if that's someone's area in their life that's still unsanctified and unyielded to God, then what happens is that God will allow something to come into our lives that makes us angry or that has the potential to make us angry. And then that thing happens and that anger comes out and we blurt it, you know, it rises up within us and we blow our lid, you know, we flip out. And then we look at it and we blame the circumstance. We say, well, if you hadn't, then I wouldn't have. No, 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 no. See, the circumstance didn't cause the anger. It just revealed it. <laughs> the anger was already there that, w- that, that was in you. The circumstance just brought it out. Now, what's your struggle? We all have struggles. We can either blame the things that cause us to stumble or we can be honest with our own hearts And say, the reason why I stumble is because I have this area in my heart and in my life that's unsanctified. And that's what happened to Abram, is that he was a very self-reliant man at this stage of his Christian experience, his walk with the Lord. And rather than waiting upon God and trusting in God, he had the tendency to take things into his own hands, and the famine revealed it. Now, here's the amazing thing about this circumstance. Not only did it reveal that flaw in Abraham, it also healed that flaw in Abraham. Because although he will lie again, he will never go to Egypt or leave Canaan again, even if a famine comes. 
And so the trials and tests and temptations and even the failures that exist within our lives because of those things, they don't cause us to sin. They reveal sin. And hopefully they facilitate freedom from sin. Because when we confess, when we come back to the altar and we say, God, this is what's in me. I lay it down before you. The Bible says that when we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us. Or break the power of that sin within our lives. And so the trials reveal and the trials also set us free. Number three that we learn from this passage is this. Know that your sin will find you out. That's scripture. Know that your sin will find you out. Compromise to confusion to complication. It's going to unravel. It's always going to unravel. Thank God that there's grace in the thing. Um, <laughs> number four, <clears throat> repentance is always met by absolute and immediate forgiveness from God. That when we repent of, of, a, of a way that we're going that isn't right or of a sin or a condition that would, that's revealed within our heart that's wrong, and we bring it to the Lord in repentance, he does not make us do penance he doesn't say, let me wait and see if, pass this, see if you can pass this test next time it comes around. He doesn't do any of those things. When we say, God, I have sinned, I am sorry. It is immediately, at that moment, instantaneously, when it's confessed, placed under the blood of Christ. It is cast as far as the east is from the west. And God, who knows everything, chooses to forget it. Think about it. God, who can't forget makes himself forget. And that's important for you and I to know. Because we can waste a lot of time under a cloud of condemnation that is not made by God. Abram repents, he goes back to Egypt, and God immediately picks him up right where he's at and continues with the plan that God has for him. And so repentance always met by absolute and immediate forgiveness. And then number five, and finally, though Abram seems to be back at the very beginning where he first started. He's not back at the beginning where he first started. Sometimes it seems that way in the Christian life, doesn't it? I remember having um, several several instances uh, in my uh, early Christian days where I, I was studying the word, I was pursuing the things of God, and then I would stumble in some way, and I would weep because I felt like I've made no progress at all. I've gone absolutely nowhere. And sometimes we can get that feeling like, oh, I'm right back at the beginning. I've made no progress at all. That's never true. Because no matter how much we stumble or what errors we make or where we, we flub or where we come back to come back around the mountain, oh, it feels like I'm, I was already here. Why am I here again? Oh, I've wasted all this time. That's never the case. Because the things that we've learned or experienced or set free from or the rocks that we've tripped over or the thorns that have cut us or whatever else that it is, those things are forever for us teachers that we might avoid those things in the future. And so it's never for nothing. Abraham seems to be at the beginning. He's back at the altar at Bethel and hey, I wasted all that time. But it's not a waste. He is eternally better because of the things uh, that he went through. He had a terrible cancer burned out of him through that whole experience. And he'll never struggle uh, with that sin of not trusting God again. Interesting, isn't it, as we look at Abraham's life and we see the grace of God uh, in his life. Some people think, you know, there's a different God between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament God is a God of wrath. We don't like him. 
In the New Testament, God, Jesus, he's a God of grace. We like him. No, 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 no. He says, I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we see this incredible grace that God is showing towards Abraham, that even when he makes incredibly stupid moves, God not only gets him out of it, but God picks him up right where he was, and he continues with the promise that he made to him. He's not going to let it fail. Not one word will fail. And no matter where we're at in our walk with him, or in the unfolding of his plan in our lives or for our lives, he's going to do the same thing with us. And so Abraham teaches us the grace of God. Father, we just thank you uh, um, as we consider these things and how they uh, overlay the situations in our own life. Lord, we pray that you would be the Lord to us again. And wherever we find ourselves here this morning, Lord, in, uh, in, in all of these things, we ask that you would give us the grace and the wisdom that if there needs to be a realigning of things, or a turning away from certain things, or the undoing of compromise. We ask, Lord, that you would help us, Lord Jesus, that though we might need to humble ourselves in some way, but that we might find ourselves back where we need to be. And Lord, we commit to you the plan and the reason you've made each one of us. And we ask, Father, that we would not waste time. And certainly, Lord, that we wouldn't come to the end of our lives and realize that we never yielded enough or never yielded ourselves in a way wherein we could see your best placed upon us. So help us, Lord. Help us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.